0: Good morning everyone, I'm Naomi and I'll be reading today's Bible reading. Today we're reading from John chapter 19 and we're starting at verse 1 and going all the way to the end of the chapter to verse 42. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realise I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed them over to, handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claims to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, divided them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now this was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw this has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one that they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. But secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus bought a mixture of myrrh and aloes with 70, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there.
1: Have you ever heard the story of how a leech solved an 80-year-old criminal case of robbery in northern Tasmania? Evidently, the guy got caught because a leech found at the scene of the crime contained his blood. DNA taken from the blood in a leech identified a man who then pleaded guilty of robbing a woman 80 years earlier. He'd stabbed her with a stick and robbed her of $550. Interesting that after 80 years, the blood still speaks. It gave clarity and justice to a crime committed all those years earlier. Now, I tell you that since it's Good Friday. Good Friday happens every year. And for some of you watching, this is the usual time that you would head to church. And if that's you, I am so glad that you're with us online today. Maybe in your past you went to church too. And maybe you're thinking today might be a good time to dip your toe back in. Consider the claims of Jesus that he makes and and what that's like. And again, if that's you, thank you for watching. I appreciate you stopping to pause to think with us today about who Jesus is and what he's done. And of course, if Trinity Church Golden Grove is the gathering of believers that you belong to, hi everyone, great to have you with us. So each year, Good Friday comes around. Have you ever wondered why it's called Good Friday? After all, historically, there's lots of talk about Jesus, his crucifix. Given that crucifixion was messy business, it of course means blood. So how is that good? Well, that's what I want to put before you today. Is it really Good Friday? Not just the day either, but the message of Good Friday that we celebrate is that actually good news that we celebrate the birth of life and the death and even the blood of Jesus? So come with me to John chapter 19. We're going to open the Bible. We're going to hear what God would say to us as we make a few brisk comments along the way and then pause at the end to make three observations about what this means for us today. Now you can follow along with your outline, which is under the notes section of Church Online as well. We're going to look at this story in two parts. Part one, the authority Jesus has before the cross. And part two, he is king of the cross. Part one. So it's about 6.30 on a cold morning. The chief priests and a large crowd of people are standing in front of Herod the Great's sprawling palace. We learn in 19 verse 1 that Pilate, the Roman ruler over this part of the world, orders Jesus to be flogged. It's pretty nasty business. Pilate orders this to try and appease the crowds. Their are is th- seething with rage and bitterness at this point. And Jesus, the God-man, the one whose hands had healed and fed thousands in his lifetime, who gently hugged children and cared for widows, is now reeling under the pain of the hands of men as he takes a beating from soldiers. A crown then lands on his head in 19.2. Actually, it's more more like forced. It's made of thorns. What should signify dignity and honour is now turned to an ugly, gnarly, cruel implement of pain. A robe of purple is adorned on him, reserved for royalty just to mock him even further. And then their words, they hurt him with, these, with their taunts. Hail, King of the Jews, in 19 verse 3. Ironically, the soldiers at this point speak better than they know. You know, hundreds of years prior, the prophet Isaiah predicted the results of Jesus' suffering here, saying, Many were astonished at you. His appearance was so mild beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Well, this is it for Jesus. This is that moment. I mean, when the soldiers finish playing with Jesus for sport, Pilate brings him out to the crowds and just says, 19.4, I have no charge against him. I mean, Jesus is still wearing the robe, the crown. And so Pilate says in 19.5, Behold this man. What would they be looking at at this point? A man stripped of any dignity? Beaten, wearing clothes only to mock his claims as king? Yes. You know, if Pilate tried to get Jesus off the cross at this point, that that plan backfires. Because like sharks thrashing in the foamy sea mid-hunt when they've smelt blood, the crowd have seen Jesus there, and they want more. Crucify him, they shout in nineteen six. They want death and a bitterly cruel one at that. Crucifixion was the worst death imaginable. It deliberately delayed dying until maximum torture was inflicted. Victims would often hang for hours and hours agonizing on the cross. They'd often be hung at eye level uh, and in a public place so people could pass by and spit on them or hurl abuse too. A word was even invented to describe this pain and horror, excruciating, which literally means from the cross. In verse 7, the crowd says that Jesus is the Son of God, perhaps to get Pilate to hurry up and, and crucify him. But Pilate hears this and he's he's taken back. He's just had the Son of God beaten. You see, the Romans were superstitious. To be be the Son of a God or have that leveled at you, that implied a level of divinity. So Pilate's shocked and says in verse 10, I can release you. I have authority, Jesus. (laughs) To which Jesus says, actually, no, you don't. You're not in control. The God from above is at work in this event. This is one of these moments in the Bible, that show us just how absolute divine sovereignty is compatible with human significance and real human choices. Even the worst evil, even a pandemic, that can't escape the outer bounds of God's sovereignty, you see. Nature isn't sovereign, Satan isn't sovereign, sinful man is not sovereign, God rules them all, and it's here that Jesus' authority as the sovereign God is on display for all to see, yes, from a cross. But as fearful as Pilate was of Jesus, a greater fear soon swept over him, the fear of Caesar. The Jews now trapped Pilate behind a perfectly immovable rock. Pilate, you're a king! And just realize that because we think you're pretty amazing, Pilate, um, know that you're not going to be a friend of Caesar anymore if you let this Jesus off and don't put him to death. Because remember, he claimed to be king, and that means something. That means that that's treason. You don't want to be that guy, do you, Pilate, that lets this king go? You see, Pilate was on shaky ground with Rome at this time, and the threat of being out of sorts of Caesar was too much to be handled. Notice here, the Jews are very quick to identify with Pilate as their king, but also, they want Jesus as their king, just so they can kill him. Pilate sits down in verse 13, and so seals Jesus' fate on the cross. Now, it's significant here at this point that John adds, it was a day of preparation of the Passover in verse 14. You see, every year, on this day, a lamb was prepared to be killed and eaten, At a feast where God's people remembered how God had redeemed them out of Egypt by his grace, by the life of another, to form and shape them as a people. This was the defining mark for the Israelites as a people group. And at this moment, as the Jews were waking up midday, going about their business, preparing a lamb, so too God was preparing the lamb, his own son, Jesus the Christ. And so that's part one. We leave Jesus with the full authority of the situation yet allowing himself to be crucified as the Lamb of God. He used his authority to serve the Father and to serve us by giving up his life as our ransom. So part two, we see the authority of Jesus before the cross. Now we see Jesus as King of the cross. So part one began with Jesus getting a beating and ending with the crowd saying, we're no king but Caesar. Part two now begins with the crucifixion and ends with silence as we're left to behold the crucified King. Now, John's emphasis in recording all this, by the way, isn't to describe the physical act of being crucified. He mentions it actually only in one verse, in 1918, as he says, Jesus was crucified. He's not writing to describe how the nails went in, how it sounded, the way the soldiers did it, the tears, the violent screams. But certainly, John wants us to see that Jesus did suffer. He never diminishes the suffering of Jesus. But his purpose is to show us the sovereign plan of the Father and Son, and the Spirit from eternity past until this moment where Jesus willingly, with all authority as King, dies on the cross for the benefit of God's glory being upheld in the universe because of sinful people like you and me. So at this point, Pilate's still hovering around and he puts a sign above the cross declaring Jesus to be King of the Jews, 19 to 22. That's practical. You do it so the general public knows what they did wrong and they wouldn't do it. And it's a public way of telling Caesar Jesus was on the cross because he claimed to be King. Now, that, of course, enrage the Jews. Suddenly, they don't want Jesus as their king. But Pilate's reply was, right. He says, I'm not changing it. You can't unmake a king, right, even if you try and dethrone him in death. Some time passes. It's probably 12 o'clock now, and suddenly Jesus feels death's hands taking hold of him, his body pounding, his heart breaking, and he feels the pull towards darkness of separation from God. And so, knowing this is the purpose for which he came alive for in the first place, he declares in these wonderful words in 19 verse 30, it is finished. But it's not the pain that he says finished. It's the sin bearing of the world that's now in him as he dies, separated from God alone, drinking the cup of wrath and death and judgment that wasn't his, but he gladly took. So we may drink the cup of salvation. As Jesus said of himself a few years earlier, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. But you see, God is not a bloodthirsty leech nor a violent, unstable being. This talk of blood and death. You know, various threads of God's dealing with humanity all culminate at the cross like a grand final victory. And why Jesus died can only be understood when we start to understand how abhorrent and ugly and violating sin is to God. You see, if you reduce sin in any form, then the need for Jesus to go to a cross is is ridiculous. But you maintain a high view of the horror of sin, and it's wonderfully glorious. You see, sin angers God because sin is the very thing that opposes God. It seeks to dethrone His glory, give it to another. It's the willful rebellion from His loving, rule, and care, and it decreates God's goodness and reduces His words to a lie and starts to kill all that He's made. But know, we see God as wrathful because of that, yet peaceful. God is just, yet He is also loving. There's never any hint of God's love stopping His justice being done. Rather, because God is loving, justice must be done, you see. And it's on the cross... We see this all united. God's character perfectly on display for us. As 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. The cross of Jesus is where divine justice and holiness and love kiss. Jesus' blood is the answer we need. Like that leech solving the crime in Tasmania, but on a cosmic level for our offense before God. But you know, unfortunately, a dead Jesus Jesus is no good. Not today, and not back then either. The Jews don't want him on the cross to mess up their public holiday, which is coming around the corner, so they ask for a little help. This would involve the Romans breaking the legs of those on the cross so they couldn't hold themselves up anymore, and they would suffocate and and die. They do that to the first two criminals. However, they find Jesus already dead. So, Roman brutality is still highly visible, and they pierce his side with a spear, 1934. And now John, the author, he was there watching. And at the moment, that he was pierced. Blood and water, two key parts that make up our bodies, flow out of Jesus. John ensured us that he really saw that. that. That was real, lest we think Jesus not dead or not really human. And you read that, and an old song comes to mind. Rock of age is cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood flow from your river, riven side which flowed. Thee of have sinned the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Then in the final part of, of part two, uh, we meet two new characters, Jesus is now dead. And a man called Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, a member of the high council who, who boldly now goes to, before Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus and then lays him in a tomb. And that's the end. You know, there's this great scene in, in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And the White Witch is about to thrust a dagger into Aslan, who's the Lion King of Narnia, to kill him of course, and she leans over right before and says with this deliciously evil voice, you know, Aslan, I'm a little disappointed in you. Did you really think that by giving your life you would save the human boy? You're not giving up your life uh, and saving no one. So much for love. You know, perhaps the same thing could be said about Jesus. It's just a story, nothing else. No love. No God, no justice, no Good Friday. It's just a fable, a fairy tale to make the weak feel a little bit better as they navigate the world, to give them hope. There is more, when really we've since proven God is not real. Neither could Jesus' death be anything more than just a good example of how we should you know, copy him and live and serve one another in love. Or is it? So back to the question, why would Christians celebrate this? The claims of Jesus, his violent, bloody death, why would we glory in that? And why does that make it Good Friday? Uh, How is Jesus' vicarious death? Is that more than an example? But does it somehow reach down to the core of what it means to be human? Well, I have three observations from the passage. Three questions uh, for you to consider as we finish up today in the next five minutes. Firstly, we see from this that Jesus identifies with us. Practically, in, in his suffering, physically, as we saw. Lots of suffering in our life is physical, is it not? But Jesus also suffered abuse. He was violated as a human, at the very level of what it means to be human. We see him ridiculed. He had emotional suffering that he experienced. He was paraded in front of others, naked, beaten, less of who he is for everyone to see. And and that just touches us deeply, does it not? I mean, is there nothing more than we dread than being thought ridiculous? One scholar has said that nothing so really penetrates the armor of self-esteem than mocking laughter. Let me just translate that into the fear of insecurity, uh, and fear and insecurity. I mean, of receiving online abuse today, being the victim of being trolled, or having your identity stolen, or or having your family and friends laugh at you or dismiss you as stupid. When you know that stuff cuts us deep. It, it shows how vile people can be, how sinful others are, and Jesus knows it. Not he knows it because he experienced it. You see, the Christian gospel gives us forgiveness when we've done those morally corruptible things, but also Jesus died to give us justice and to cleanse us from the evil that others have done to us too. See, we have a saviour who both understands the profound hurt that has happened to us and who can render justice at the same time. And that changes the entire game. Joni Erickson Tada has said, there's nothing more intimate than finding Jesus in your garden of Gethsemane. So I have a question for you to think about on the bottom of your handout. In what ways does Jesus knowing and experiencing loss and pain give you comfort and hope? That's the first point. Secondly, Jesus reigns over us. So, not only do we see Jesus identifying with us in his suffering, he does so as the true king who frees us from the world, the flesh, and the devil by reigning from a cross. In verses 24, 28, and 36, John inserts these little claims to show us that Scripture is being fulfilled as this happens. And that's what the king does, right? He leads his people to victory, fulfills their longings and desires and hopes in him and with him, all in his kingdom. Remember too, that the soldiers and Pilate, the Jews, all of them, all of them say far more than they really understand when they declare him king. There's this hiddenness of Jesus here. Because Jesus' kingship is not like human kingship. It's not through power. It's through suffering. He was rich and he became poor. Though he was king, he served. And you can't always see that at first. Because it's so different to how we want it to be. Yeah, and we can enter his kingdom. It's not with strength, not doing things, but it's in weakness and repentance and humility. Because he's done it for us. We can contribute nothing to our salvation. He said on the cross, it's finished. The hope of Jesus for the Christian is not grounded in some impersonal force, right wins out in the end, or an overly optimistic response, I'm sure it's going to turn out right. But, in the righteousness of God, you see the Christian view is that because we live in a theistic universe, right will finally prevail because God is just and it 's on the cross that that all happens and that 's so strange to hear this uh, Frederick uh, Nietzsche, I think I said that right, a German philosopher, he rejected the cross of Jesus because in his words, Christianity is religion of pity. his bitterness against christian the Christian God led him to say. Christianity is the God of the sick, the God of spider, God on the cross. He rejects Christianity because it's too weak to be of any value. Richard Dawkins also contributed to this by saying Jesus, or had Jesus himself um, been tortured and executed for a symbolic sin, so was he tortured for a symbolic sin by a non-existent individual? Nobody not brought up in the faith, he said, could reach any verdict other than barking mad. What do you think? Are the claims of Jesus as king come to reign over us from the cross? Is that barking mad and and too weak? Or is there something else in the claims of Jesus that are wonderful and glorious and life-giving? The final thought is that Jesus creates commitment in us. Two small comments from 38 to 42. Whatever we could say about Joseph before Jesus' death, his fear and hiddenness, The crucifixion clearly created boldness enough for him to go to Pilate and ask for the body. Suddenly, Joseph of Arimathea was willing to be identified with Jesus in his death like never before. Secondly, in 1939, we learn Nicodemus bought 34 kilograms of spices to be wrapped around Jesus' body. 34 kilos of spices. That was expensive. It was a costly thing to do. You don't drop that much money or stuff carelessly. You do it because you're committed to the cause. A scholar Bruce Milne comments that that amount of spices, actually, that they put on Jesus' body, that was more than you normally used. The only occasion when such amounts were used was at the burial of a king. What Joseph and Nicodemus saw on the cross suddenly changed them and compelled them to a new level of commitment to Jesus. They saw him as king, willing to serve him with their life because of how he served and saved them in his death. So another question for you on the handout. Given all that we've seen, how do the claims that Jesus makes in his life and death, how do they encourage you as a disciple of him? Would you, be one that, uh, would you be someone that identifies as a follower of Jesus? It's a good question to think over. So Jesus' blood, better than a leech solving a crime 80 years ago. Because after all these years, the cross of Jesus still speaks. It still gives justice to God for our name to be cleared, having paid in full, stamped over us, all because Jesus used his blood so we could go free. And that's what makes a Good Friday. It will always be a Good Friday. No pandemic can take that away from you. So what about you? Why not make today Good Friday? Let's pray. Our Father God, we have only just scraped the surface of what Jesus has done in his death on the cross. We realize and confess that that death was not because he earned it or deserved it, but simply for us to work a salvation that we could not do on our own. And Father, we thank you that he suffered and endured that as our example, as our substitute, as someone to take our very place and satisfy your anger at sin. And we thank you that you love us enough to send him. Father, thank you today is Good Friday. May it be a Good Friday for everyone here now listening and watching. Father, may those of watching who do not know you as the Savior, as the King on a cross, with all authority over heaven and earth and life and death, maybe some of you right now would repent and trust Jesus' death for their behalf. I pray that would be so. Father, we thank you that while this is the end of the cross, Father, Sunday's coming. Set in us a desire for what that means in light of the cross. In your name we pray. Amen.